Hey everyone, this is Jesse. On each episode of the show, I'm going to focus on a different environmental crisis and its intersection with ecology, human health, and colonialism and capitalism. And in this episode, I'm going to jump around to a few different timelines and, and through lines. And towards the end, we're going to try and bring them towards some kind of synthesis. But fair warning, we're going to discuss some pretty dark history today, uh, namely the history of genocide and oppression inflicted by the United States onto the indigenous peoples who first inhabited and continue to inhabit the land stolen by the U.S. I'm writing this as we speak from the traditional lands of the Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, Peoria, Miamia, Kickapoo, and Ocheti Shakoe peoples. The Ocheti Shakoe, or Seven Council Fires, uh, encompass multiple linguistically related, but also culturally distinct peoples, uh, and that includes the Dakota, whose history we'll be primarily focusing on here. Colonial violence continues well into the modern day. Uh, it can be argued, and often is argued, that colonialism is an ongoing structural force rather than a, an event that happened uh, long ago in the past. Uh, colonialism continues to legitimize various forms of violence on indigenous peoples, both indirect violence and direct violence. And of course, the repercussions of that are vast and devastating. The term post-colonialism refers to a theoretical lens that uses the ongoing impact of colonialism on the post-colonies to examine these forms of violence. Um, this term is kind of fraught within the scholarship, as you might expect, because it evokes a completed process of decolonialization, with like a happy ending, if you will. Uh, but th this is not the case, that's important to note. Um, nevertheless, you know, the, this style of critique, uh, post-colonial critique, is useful for reevaluating uh, American ideology, um, using ideology there with a capital I, as well as our cultural identity and, uh, and our myths around America. So in terms of direct colonial violence, we do not have to look very far into the past to find plenty of horrific examples. Um, this is alive and well in the modern day, and often this violence is inextricably linked with extractive industries, militarized police, and or the military-industrial complex. From the assassinations of indigenous opponents of Amazon deforestation, like Shanildo Guajajara in 2022, to police working hand in glove with the fossil fuel giant Enbridge to surveil and brutalize indigenous protesters on the Line 3 pipeline in 2020, to the elevated rates of murder and sexual assault against indigenous women surrounding fossil fuel developments just the past decade, to the poisoning of the water supply of Native Hawaiians by the U.S. Navy at Red Hill in 2021 and continuing to this day. These are just a few examples. Uh, you can find more information on these examples and everything else we're going to discuss today in the show notes as well. My goal here is to bring into focus the evolution of a particular strain of this colonial violence. This is a mix of the direct and indirect violence we talked about. And it's built into the structure of colonialism. That is, uh, I'm talking about the deliberate degradation and destruction of people, ecology, and entire cultures by the forces of empire and capital. This includes like literal physical harm inflicted on people alongside uh, the attempted annihilation of actual cultural practices and traditions and ways of life and socio-spiritual connections to the natural world. Um, as a white suburban podcast man, I'm obviously not the best person to speak directly on indigenous history and experience, and I really don't want this to you know, turn into a, a exercise in shock value or the exaltation of, of violence uh, against indigenous people. And to this end, I'm going to do my best here to quote directly from indigenous people themselves and historians whenever possible in telling our story here today. Uh, I'm going to be citing extensively from a book I found in my public library 
called Minnesota Makoche, The Land of the Dakota by Westerman and White. I really do recommend this book. It's really beautifully written and like really, really extensively sourced. Um, it also has a wonderful pronunciation guide uh, at the front, uh, but nevertheless, I will probably mess up some names uh, and places, so forgive me. I will also be playing some quotes collected from a PBS documentary called Dakota Exile, so you can hear Dakota people describe their own histories and experiences in their own words. Uh, this documentary is from 1996, and so unfortunately many of the Dakota elders in that documentary have since passed away, uh, many of which lived through residential schooling. So I think it's especially important to you know, hear what they had to say now. Um, you can watch the whole thing on YouTube for free, which I really do recommend. Um, all this being said, let us continue. Today, in the quiet shallows of the lake, a little fish weaves amongst tall weeds, searching for his next meal. We would call him a bluegill, and he is a bright shade of blue, uh, though he will soon develop a deep orange hue on his throat. This impressive display is intended to attract would-be mates, and at about two years old, he's only a few inches long, so he'll stick to the relative safety of the weeds rather than risk facing the dangers of the open lake water. At times, he blends into the crowd, which is a school of about 15 of his peers. His territory is small, it's about 30 meters squared, and it won't get much larger throughout his life. He knows it well, like the back of his fin. In the summer, he forages, but he can't afford to be too picky. He needs to eat about a third of his body mass every single day to sustain his metabolism. Uh, bugs, plants, other fish, if it fits in his mouth, it is eaten. All the while, he takes care to avoid being eaten himself. Our little bluegill has many enemies. The bass, the muskie, heron, even some adults of his own kind might take a shot at him. He has a few tricks up his fin sleeves, though. Uh, a bold black eye spot set behind his gills gives the impression of a much larger fish, discouraging some predators. Those who do try to make a meal of him may find his dorsal spine sticking uncomfortably in their craw, that is, if they can catch him. His flat, deep body and robust fins are built for tight turns and high maneuverability. Like most fish, his nervous system is keenly specialized for quick, unpredictable escape trajectories. As he darts away from danger, his movements are a surprise even to him. Millions of generations have slowly honed his form and physiology to fit elegantly into his ecosystem. Should he survive long enough, he may soon build a nest in the sediment in the hopes of attracting a female. Heck, he might even attract more than one. Uh, he will circle his nest, grunting all the while to catch their attention, and his male peers will be doing the same, on the same day, actually. Uh, on this day of all days, a female might lay tens of thousands of eggs in his nest, and he will promptly fertilize them and then stand guard. He alone is left to guard this nest from would-be egg thieves. In a week or so, the eggs will have hatched. The fry or baby fish will be able to leave his roost in a few days, and then he'll be left alone again to forage among the weeds, a little larger and a little wiser. The lake has had many names, though we might imagine the bluegill knows it only as home, or some concept like home. His ancestors have been here for generations and generations and generations. His own journey is an echo of those made by the countless fish that came before him, from even before his species even existed. Generations that culminate in his being in the here and now. Things have been a bit different lately though. A recent development, an influx of tiny little new things floating in the water. This happened in the blink of an eye, at least on an evolutionary time frame. Mysterious little forms that his ancestors would not even recognize. That is, if the things were even large enough to see or notice. They came from outside the lake, perhaps carried in on the rain. They came and now they're here, and they've embedded themselves into our bluegill. 
his blood, his liver, his muscle. These things are in each of his tissues and they will continue to accumulate inside him for the rest of his life. They won't stay in his body forever though. When he dies, they will reunite with his surroundings one way or the other. If he is to be eaten, his predator will take them on board, but the predator actually already has them too. In fact, these things are in every single fish in the lake and they're in the bugs they eat. They're in the sediment and they're in the water. They're in me and they're in you too. My name is Jesse Black, and you are listening to Sludge Fest's episode two, Bluegill. Assimilation. Alternate title, Fuck John C. Calhoun. We zoom out from our bluegill to view the entire lake the way a bird might see it. We'll also move backwards in time uh, from right now, about 221 years. Uh, So the year is 1802 now. Uh, This lake is well known by the Dakota, a First Nations people indigenous to what is now called Minnesota in the United States. The Dakota are often erroneously referred to as the Sioux, which is a French-derived name for a larger subculture of indigenous peoples. Uh, This is the Ocheti Shakomi I referenced earlier, uh, of which the Dakota are are one part. Uh, The Dakota name for this lake is Midemukaska, or White Banks Lake. Before 1802, the broader region had already been inhabited by various indigenous people for tens of thousands of years. Uh, The lake is a prime fishing spot, and the Dakota fish for crappie, bluegill, and other tasty panfish for sustenance. Back when the lake was more of a marsh than a lake, rice was cultivated here. Quoting from Westerman and White, quote, As one strolls along the busy shores of Lake Calhoun, known to the Dakota as Bide Makaska, or White Banks Lake, in reference to the sandy white beaches that envelop the waters, the true history of this place feels absent. A small monument on the east side of the lake marks a spot that goes largely unseen. The history of the land and the waters that have protected this space for centuries is a long and contentious one, upon which only a small fraction of perspectives have been properly documented." End quote. At this very instant, in 1802, hundreds of miles away, in what is now called Brandywine Creek, Delaware, a French immigrant and chemist is founding a gunpowder company. His name is Eliter Irané Dupont. I'm sure that I pronounced that name wrong too, but as a general rule, I do not apologize to the French. Uh, Remember this name, Dupont, though, or Dupont. Um, It'll come back later. For now, let us return to the lake. In 1825, American soldiers head down to Bede Makaska to establish a fort nearby. They christen it Fort Snelling, and they rename the lake Lake Calhoun after a prominent American statesman and eventual vice president, John C. Calhoun. Quick aside here, John C. Calhoun is a huge racist, even by the standards of the time, and a devoted advocate of slavery. Uh, His writings would go on to help inspire the secession of the Confederacy during the U.S. Civil War. Uh, Personal opinion here, but he looks like Sam the Eagle from the Muppets, but more racist. Uh, Fuck John C. Calhoun big time. The guy sucks. It's now 1830, and an agent from the Bureau of Indian Affairs named Lawrence Taliaferro is assigned to administrate over the few hundred Dakota living near the lake. Taliaferro urges them to give the American agricultural system a shot and become full-time farmers, uh, quote, the white man's way. 
for generations prior to this, they had survived and thrived by fishing, hunting, foraging, gardening, gathering, and migrating in rhythm with the seasons to follow food and favorable weather. They have long since developed an extensive understanding of and connection to the land and its inhabitants. They garden and gather native plants rather than cultivating a single cash crop on a large-scale farm. Nevertheless, the Dakota agreed to give this a shot, and Taliaferro, apparently quite pleased with himself, views this as like a little cute experiment, and he refers to the village as, quote, my little colony of Sioux agriculturists. Chief Cloudman, or Mahbia Wichashta, of the Black Dog Band of Dakota, understands this plan as a chance to uh, secure some political favor for his people among the Americans, and at the same time, uh, get some economic independence and maybe even some long-term food stores. Ecological conditions have already begun to decline recently due to an influx of American settlers, and the chief himself actually nearly starves to death a few years prior during a particularly nasty winter storm. Um, importantly, he doesn't view this experiment in American agricultural as some kind of betrayal of Dakota values. Quoting here again from Westerman and White, quote, He was simply making an honest attempt to adapt to his surroundings. The change in subsistence patterns did not make his people of the village any less Dakota. Its members not only tried to feed themselves more efficiently, but shared their wealth in a typical Dakota way with neighboring bands, thus ensuring the survival of more Dakota people. End quote. Talia Pharaoh is apparently puzzled at the sharing part. Uh, he decides to, quote, lecture the people not to give away their corn to others of their relations with other matters of importance to their interests, end quote. Over the next few decades, the United States continues to carve chunks of territory out from under the Dakota, new lands for white settlers and industry. This is accomplished through manipulative treaties, promises of payment that are often reneged upon, as well as outright lies and eventually violence. Uh, several times, leaders of the Dakota and neighboring tribes are brought to summits alongside trading company lobbyists and U.S. officials. Uh, this is done under the pretense of settling disputes over hunting territory. The idea here being establish clear legal borders between the tribes and to, quote, maintain the peace. The underlying motive on the part of these lobbyists and U.S. officials, however, would be to shrink these legally delineated boundaries, quote, legally, in subsequent treaties and trades. In writings to U.S. officials, an agent of the American fur company named Hercules Deuceman, I know, uh, <laughs> Hercules, Hercules Deuceman admits uh, that these treaty delegations are, quote, ostensibly to make peace, but the real object is to get their lands, end quote. So he's not even, I mean, not even really hiding it at this point, but um, again, that was communications from a, from the big fur company to the U.S. government. So I guess he didn't, Hercules did not feel the need to, to play his cards close to his vest, I suppose. Moreover, the terms of these treaties were often not even adequately translated for the tribes involved. Uh, in some cases, U.S. officials agree to terms negotiated by the Dakota, such as you know, including several islands in their legal territory, only to conveniently leave these islands out of the treaty at the time of signing, uh, permanently locking them out of Dakota territory. By 1860, over 170,000 American settlers have taken up residence on Dakota homelands. Their presence takes a heavy toll on the local populations of wild fish and game, traditionally relied upon by the Dakota for subsistence. Dakota communities have begun to starve, and this is compounded by a series of crop failures and harsh winters. At the onset of the American Civil War, payments of food and money promised to the now starving Dakota begin to arrive late. Then they stop showing up at all. Negotiations deteriorate when, after a payment to the Dakota is late to arrive, another agent from the Bureau of Indian Affairs named Thomas Gilbraith refuses to disperse food. 
Uh, he basically says, well, we usually disperse the food and the money at the same time. Um, the money's not here, so we, we can't actually give out any of the food. So sorry, uh, this doesn't go over very well. Um, despite pleadings from Dakota leaders, negotiations really deteriorate when a local white trader named Andrew Myrick makes a particularly shitty comment. Uh, quoting here from Agnes Ross of the Flandro Sauti Sioux tribe. And the trader said, well, the Indians owe me that because they've been each azoing here getting crap at. I said, well, if they're hungry, tell them to go out and eat grass. Shortly after, in 1862, an understandably enraged Chief Little Crow leads a group of Dakota in a series of raids to take back land and food from settlers. Uh, Mr. Let Them Eat Grass is killed almost immediately, and as the story goes, his severed head is later found uh, with his mouth stuffed with grass. In response to this, the United States declares war and sends in infantry and artillery, led by Brigadier General Henry Sibley. They are supplemented with a volunteer militia assembled by Minnesota Governor Alexander Ramsey, who offers a $200 bounty for every Dakota scalp turned in. This campaign is still sometimes referred to as a war or a conflict, but I don't want to mince words here. The, what comes next is just genocide. So here's a quote from Ramsey, the governor of Minnesota, to the state legislature in 1862. Quote, our course then is plain. The Sioux Indians of Minnesota must be exterminated or driven forever beyond the borders of the state. End quote. After weeks of skirmishes, the Dakota are defeated and Chief Little Crow is killed in battle. Following his death, thousands of Dakota surrender. I'm quoting here again from Westerman and White, quote, In September, approximately 2,000 people gather to await Brigadier General Sibley's arrival. They surrendered, fully expecting to be treated humanely as prisoners of war based on Sibley's promises that they would be protected. The men were separated from the women and children and tried for their crimes. 303 were condemned to die in Mankato. The remaining 1,700 women, children, and elderly, including hundreds of non-combatants, some of whom who had protected white settler refugees from the war, were rounded up and forced marched to a concentration camp beneath the bluffs of Fort Snelling, where they were held over the winter of 1862. Several hundred died. And in the spring of 1863, the survivors were sent by steamboat down the Mississippi River and up the Missouri, beyond the borders of their Minnesota homeland, end quote. So as thousands languished in concentration camps, uh, others were massacred, quote. Two military columns were organized and rode out in a pincer movement to expel the remaining Dakota from the state. They massacred more than 300 non-combatant Dakota at Whitestone Hill, just northwest of Lake Traverse in September 1863, end quote. In 1863, 35 years after its founding, the fort by the lake is now the site of a concentration camp. Among the hundreds that die here is Machbia Wichasta, Chief Cloudman, the chief who, to help his people, agreed to try agriculture in the village alongside Videmakaska. Quoting from Western and White again, quote, He died there and was buried within sight of the valley he loved so well and not far from where he was born. After this, the lands of the Dakota, as recognized by the federal government, are formally dissolved. The Dakota are formally exiled from the state. Hundreds are sentenced to death for this conflict. President at the time, Abe Lincoln, settles for hanging just 38 Dakota men. Uh, this remains, writing this from today, 2023, the largest mass execution in American history, as they decided to, for effect, 
hang all 38 men from the same gallows. Here is Eli Taylor from the Sioux Valley, Dakota Nation. But when they were walking up that steps there to, to the gallows, one Indian was walking up. There are many of us here who have not harmed anyone, who have not done anything wrong. Here you are hanging us, but our Creator can see this. He will answer for this in the future. Quoting now from Alvina Alberts from the Devil's Lake Sioux Tribe. But I was glad they would, uh, when an eyewitness told about how they went, they had sung their death songs. They didn't flinch or hang back, just went. That's the Indian philosophy, too. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. Over the span of a century, uh, the United States government has by now pushed the Dakota to the margins uh, through state violence and economic pressure as well. And I'm using margins here in both the economic sense as well as the literal physical sense. Uh, the Dakota are actually forcefully relocated from their home to parched, sparse reservations hundreds of miles away, uh, as far as Nebraska or even Canada. And at the same time, they are also squeezed into the edges of American agriculturalism, forced to cede their lands and drop their culture and their traditions, their ways of subsistence. The Dakota are, in, quote, encouraged to assimilate into the American system as full-time farmers. This would be the solution to what missionaries and U.S. officials termed, quote, the Indian problem. The idea here being assimilation into private property holders or annihilation. I've heard a lot of Indian people say that they didn't care about property. And they said, as long as the reservation stands, we'll always have land. And here is a quote from Mike Hotain of the Sioux Valley Dakota Nation. How do we quickly implement a system for assimilation? And the quickest way to do is individualize those people and make them into farmers and put a boundary around them. And then when we do talk about farming, it becomes a purpose of a person's own materialistic image. It's no more the life of the tribe. At the same time, native language and spirituality are viewed by state administrators and missionaries as further obstacles for assimilation into American white Christian society. Missionaries work overtime to convert Dakota to Christianity. Children in residential schools are punished and hit for speaking their language and forced to cut their hair. Commissioner of Indian Affairs even declares a ban on the, quote, demoralizing and barbarous customs of the Sioux, end quote. The homelands of the Dakota, now largely vacant of their original inhabitants, are swiftly swallowed up by white settlers and eventually by heavy industry. We will return to the Dakota at the end of our story, but for now, we adjust our focus to two companies that would forever change the traditional lands and everything living in them. These are chemical companies. Uh, if you recall, the gunpowder company formed by the Frenchman Dupont back in 1802. You might recognize his namesake as today's multinational chemical manufacturing behemoth, DuPont Incorporated. In 1902, almost exactly a century after the founding of DuPont, another future behemoth of the chemical industry is born in Minnesota, the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company, or 3M.
Part two, accumulation. We move ahead 28 years to 1930 now. Both companies have expanded significantly from their beginnings. DuPont has collaborated with General Motors to form Kinetic Chemicals, and this company would go on to produce Freon. You might recall that Freon is a chlorofluorocarbon, or a CFC. CFCs were widely used in refrigerants until they were eventually found out to be punching holes in the planet's ozone layer. Uh, they were then heavily restricted internationally almost 60 years later, leading to the eventual recovery of the ozone layer. Uh, somehow this is not the subject of the episode, um, so let us continue. It is now 1938, and a scientist named Roy J. Plunkett, I know, is working in a DuPont laboratory in New Jersey. Plunkett and his assistant are working with a gas called tetrafluoroethylene, and if you remember some high school chemistry, you might be able to parse that name into the structure of this chemical. It is two carbon atoms double bonded together, that's the ethylene part, and each of those carbons has two fluorine atoms stuck to them, uh, meaning four fluorines total, that's the tetrafluoro bit. So these two are, are messing around doing some science bullshit to this gas, um, and one of them discovers a white waxy residue is building up and clogging the insides of some of their instrumentation. They realize the gas is apparently polymerized and solidified. So the individual molecules of the gas are floating around and evidently they've reacted together and, and start chaining together to form a solid polymer. Uh, this is now polytetrafluoroethylene. Uh, Plunkett and his assistant have just produced the first of a whole new line of chemical products. Steflon. <gasps> oh, well, good thing it's Teflon. Even burned food won't stick to Teflon, so it's always easy to clean. Cookware never needs scouring. If it has DuPont, Teflon. So Teflon is a member of a large family of chemicals, which we now call perfluoroalkyl or polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS. That's P-F-A-S. Uh, many of these chemicals went on to have widespread commercial and industrial applications. Uh, you might have heard the term PFCs or forever chemicals. Uh, that's what we're talking about. And they're called forever chemicals for reasons we will discuss. Uh, but for now, we're going to just use the preferred abbreviation, which is PFAS. Uh, PFAS all share a common theme, which is a chain of carbon atoms studded with some amount of fluorine. And that, that amount of fluorine is what determines whether it's perfluoroalkyl or polyfluoroalkyl. That's a bit more organic chemistry than I'd like to get into, but if you're curious. Uh, here is a great current day overview of PFAS from a paper by Barbo et al. from 2022. Per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS, previously referred to as perfluorinated compounds, are used in hundreds of industrial and consumer products, including food packaging and waterproof stain-resistant fabrics. Their strong carbon-fluorine bonds provide both hydrophobic and oleophobic properties, which make these chemicals extremely persistent in the environment. The class of PFAS includes tens of thousands of potential environmental contaminants including over 1,000 chemicals previously or currently approved for use in the U.S. So the chemical structures of this class of molecule uh, gives them the unique ability to repel both water and oily substances. That's that oleophobic and hydrophobic bit from that quote we just read. And this makes them really widely applicable as stain barriers, uh, lubricants, surfactants, adhesives, and all sorts of things. And products containing PFAS quickly become ubiquitous in industries and homes following the birth of Teflon as a commercial product. Uh, you might recall Scotchgard 
as one such example. Um, they changed the formula since, but it, it used to be made of PFOS, which is a type of PFAS. It's one of the more common uh, versions of PFAS used. Um, this was marketed as entirely safe, as were many PFAS products for decades and decades. Uh, some 3M products with PFAS in them are advertised as, quote, the solution for all your problems. There's a thought that says it is indeed fortunate to have one's cup runneth over. Fortunate, unless your cup runneth over onto your silk blouse, your fine linen tablecloth, your wool slabs, whatever, wherever. Which is precisely why we make Scotch Guard fabric protector. It keeps ordinary spills from becoming extraordinary stains on virtually any fabric. Use Scotch Guard fabric protector and let your cup runneth over. Worldwide sponsor, 1988 Olympic Games. The carbon fluorine bonds in PFAS have another unique property. Yeah, they're extremely strong. So as a result, these molecules are extremely resistant to degradation, and that's due to the, the actual strength of the carbon fluorine bond. It's very difficult to, to pry those fluorine atoms off of the carbon backbone if you wanted to, say, break down these chemicals. Uh, hence the term forever chemicals, as their long chemical lifespan allows them to reach every corner of the planet, floating across oceans and on the winds. And today they can even be detected in the Arctic and Antarctic. Aside from the commercial applications, these chemicals find a great deal of use in fluorinated firefighting foams, or FFF. Uh, PFAS can actually lower the surface tension in mixtures of liquids, which makes them really useful for extinguishing burning liquids, such as jet fuel. Uh, as such, these foams are used very widely at military bases and airports um, since they've been phased out in many, many countries. But this was, for a while, the, one of the best ways to put out a big burning pile of jet fuel, right? Uh, but as you might expect, uh, spraying chemicals out of a fire hose can lead to their seepage in the environment. Unfortunately, it gradually comes out that PFAS actually aren't always perfectly safe. Uh, but the average consumer has no way of knowing this. People have no way of knowing that the PFAS in their water and in their products and in their food are actually accumulating within their bodies. There is little to no elimination of PFAS from their tissues over decades and lifetimes. It collects in the muscle, in fat, in blood, in organs, in pretty much everything in the body. Uh, even worse, some members of the PFAS family, remember there are thousands of these types of chemicals, uh, each one can have a different, you know, potentially toxic, potentially carcinogenic effect on the body. Um, of course, this depends on the exposure severity and the duration, as well as which chemical it is among the PFAS. Uh, you don't actually know until they're tested, which they're primarily tested on animals and the dosage effects and safety thresholds, they have to be extrapolated from animals, uh, say rats, for example, uh, to human physiology. So it's, it's quite hard to actually figure out which chemicals among this group of thousands has any effect. And if they do, what are the safe you know, thresholds that humans can intake? In fact, not all PFAS would be tested for toxic effects. There's just too many to do this. Um, however, a few of them stand out as both relatively common and potentially quite harmful. Uh, these are investigated in the most depth, and their names are PFOA and PFOS. Uh, that's the Scotchgard one. Both of these are types of PFAS. They're not the only harmful forms of PFAS by any means, but they are the ones that we, most, uh, we know most about these days. Beginning in the 1950s, uh, one could grow into adulthood without hearing anything about forever chemicals until long after they had infiltrated homes, bodies, and entire ecosystems. Uh, this entire time spanning decades, and nobody had any idea. Um, actually, I'm fibbing there. Somebody had an idea. Uh, 3M and DuPont knew pretty much from the start.
So here I'd like to shout out the work of Sharon Lerner from The Intercept. She's done a ton of reporting on a trove of 3M internal documents that span decades. And from these documents, it's very evident that the company, as well as DuPont, both knew that these chemicals could have adverse health effects, at least as early as 1960. So here is a timeline of just some of the alarming results of animal testing that they did internally. Uh, often these results came out of the company's own toxicologists, and these results would not become publicly available for decades after their production. And I'd like to emphasize these are only some of the results that, uh, that I'm listing here. So here we go. 1950, 3M learns that PFAS accumulate in the blood of mice. 1961, DuPont learns that PFAS can enlarge the livers of rats. 1963, 3M's internal technical manuals list PFAS as toxic. 1978, 3M finds PFAS are toxic in monkeys. In 1979, 3M finds trace levels of PFAS in donated human blood from Red Cross. A side note that I think is important, around the same time, a University of Florida scientist named Dr. Warren Guy detected a particular fluorinated carbon compound in his colleague's blood, uh, and he reached out to 3M to see what's going on. And a 3M chemist named G.H. Crawford denied the company's responsibility until some further testing confirmed that this molecule floating around in this man's blood was indeed an exact match to one of their PFAS products, uh, PFOS, the, the Scotchgard one. And Crawford then went on to muse about the potential upsides to widespread contamination of people's blood without their knowledge. And here's a quote from Crawford in Lerner's story, quote, if it is confirmed to our satisfaction that everybody is going around with fluorocarbon surfactants in their bloodstreams with no apparent ill effect, are there some medical possibilities that would bear looking into? Perhaps PFOS might help with hardening of the arteries or kidney blockage, senility and the like, Crawford mused, going on to suggest animal experiments, quote, both from a defensive point of view and for the above, to me, intriguing reasons, end quote. So despite these revelations that PFAS chemicals were present floating around the bloodstreams of Americans, uh, 3M decided to not report any of this to the EPA at this time. Um, so we continue our timeline. 1992, a PhD thesis by Dr. Frank Gilliland finds that 3M plant workers with over 10 years exposure to the chemical PFOA died from prostate cancer at three times the rate of unexposed workers. 1993, Scientists find that some of these chemicals are transferred from mother to offspring in goats. It's in their milk. 1998, PFAS are found in wild eagles. 2001, in a report by 3M epidemiologist Geary Olson and three other co-authors, positive correlations are found between PFAS concentrations and cholesterol levels and triglycerides, those are fats, in the blood of workers at 3M chemical plants. Uh, they did a follow-up report, those same authors in 2003, uh, that kind of downgrades the severity of their previous findings. Uh, and in that follow-up, they argue that while the correlations they found were statistically significant, the actual effect sizes of PFAS on the blood metrics were, quote, minimal. At certain points in the timeline of, of these companies' production of these chemicals, uh, there's actually sufficient concern internally that, uh, that female employees are reassigned from working in PFAS production as there is concern specifically for the potential fetal effects in pregnant employees. Nevertheless, uh, these companies do not feel the need to cease production or inform the public, 
or the EPA or fucking anyone whatsoever regarding any of these risks or findings for over 40 years. In 2010, the state of Minnesota sued 3M for knowingly polluting groundwater with PFAS. The company settled for $850 million. Following the suit, the state released a shitload of internal documents from the company that paint a pretty vivid picture of the company's extensive understanding of the potential health risks, and also concerning the EPA had actually been sitting on some of these documents at the same time, and you know when all this came out, uh, they they hit the company with a bit of a a bit of a fine, which is a bit of a slap on the wrist. Um, quoting here from Lerner again, quote. Some of the documents had been under seal since 2005 as a result of a separate lawsuit over PFAS contamination in Minnesota, and the documents had been in the EPA's possession for at least 18 years. In 2000, 3M gave the EPA hundreds of documents it had withheld from the agency, resulting in over $1.5 million worth of penalties and fines in 2006 for 244 violations of the Toxic Substances Control Act. Even so, for years, the EPA did nothing. Uh, even as a few government officials and company scientists understood the vast danger they posed, PFAS were allowed to spread into groundwater and then the drinking water, into people and their children, into animals, plants, and the food system where they remain today. End quote. So this is a perfect example of fines being absolutely useless uh, for actually, you know, controlling these behemoth corporations uh, for context. Uh, 3M's earning report from just the first quarter of 2006 uh, lists a net income of $899 million. Uh, that's They actually brag that this is a 17% increase from the first quarter of the previous year, 2005. And, you know, for all of this hiding documents and sitting on them, they refined just $1.5 million for withholding this stuff for years. Um, it's, it's not even like a, it's not even like a slap on the wrist. It's like a little a little kiss on the wrist to me. It's like a wrist kiss. <sighs> Though it is worth noting that even if the company had been fined like a hundred times this amount, the, there's no undoing the decadal scale delays in any sort of regulation on PFAS production or dumping or anything like that. And this stuff was already in the environment. It was in the water. It was in people. It was everywhere at this point. So kind of too late, but nevertheless, seems like a pretty small fine to me. In 2016, the EPA sets a recommended threshold for PFAS levels in drinking water. Uh, this is their benchmark for the maximum tolerable concentration of PFAS in the water you drink on a daily basis. It is 70 ppt, that is parts per trillion, um, meaning for every trillion molecules that you drink from your tap, EPA recommends here that 70 or fewer of those molecules uh, are from the PFAS variety. Other agencies and states release their own guidelines and thresholds. Some of them are you know, almost tenfold lower than the EPA's guidelines. At the same time, in, in recent years, investigation of PFAS concentrations in water and in animals and people has become easier for independent scientists and academics. Uh, namely, detection equipment and methodology has advanced, and PFAS standards are actually easier to acquire in labs. Um, but remember, there's thousands of these types of chemicals, and many of the techniques that scientists rely on to quantify them uh, they rely on comparison to a sample of the compound with a known concentration. That's what a standard is. So as those become more available, it's, you know, it's easier to actually investigate and see how much of the shit is actually in the environment and in drinking water. Uh, and at the same time, you have these gigantic troves of internal documents released, uh, which spur further investigation into the compounds and their effects. 
So we now know that 3M and other producers have been releasing PFAS into the air and directly into rivers like the Mississippi for decades now. Uh, the contamination can reach concentrations much, much higher than even the EPA's at the time relatively lax thresholds. I'm quoting here from a 2022 article in the Chicago Tribune by Michael Hawthorne. Quote, Contractors hired by the company found at least two PFAS in three of eight public water systems and 68 of 72 private wells tested in Illinois and Iowa during the summer, according to company spreadsheets shared with the U.S. EPA. The most alarming levels were detected on the Illinois side of the Mississippi River, where concentrations of one PFAS in private wells were up to 6,250 times higher than the EPA's latest health advisory, intended to highlight when a lifetime of exposure to the chemical in drinking water could trigger health problems. Uh, this is not just a problem in the Midwestern United States. A different study from Babayev et al. in 2022 found significant concentrations of PFAS in drinking water and blood serum from the residents of a small community in Gustavus, Alaska. Uh, another meta-analysis of PFAS concentrations in drinking water across the whole U.S. by Hu et al. in 2016 reported that uh, drinking water exceeds EPA thresholds for 6 million people in the U.S. Uh, that's Roughly 2% of the U.S. population, that's 1 in 50, uh, drinking water that is contaminated past the EPA's recommended threshold. And the highest levels of contamination are often associated with lower income and marginalized communities, especially those near airports and military bases. Uh, so again, at this time, the EPA threshold is an order of magnitude higher than some of the stricter thresholds enacted by some specific U.S. states and some European countries. And it's not even just a drinking water issue. So recall that these things are in all sorts of consumer products, including carpeting. Um, so a textbook on PFAS contamination by Compisti and Raz describes how, quote, the presence of carpeting or a rug in the bedrooms of six to 10 year old US children is a significant predictor for PFAS levels in their blood plasma, end quote. So what that's saying is, is statistically, you can make an educated guess as to whether a given American child uh, has PFAS floating in their bloodstream based on whether they sleep in rooms with carpeting Another study by Ramley et al. in 2020 found that users of dental floss showed PFAS concentrations in their blood that were 40% higher than non-flossers. Uh, today, PFAS have been phased out of a lot of consumer products, with some exceptions. Uh, but the thing with these chemicals is they don't break down almost at all, so they, they remain in the environment, they remain in the water and in people. Uh, I, I don't want to imply that all of these exposures will certainly result in toxic effects, However, there is plenty of evidence that suggests that, you know, long-term and heavy exposures to these chemicals uh, is associated with some pretty nasty, you know, health outcomes from anywhere from immunosuppression to, to cancer in some cases. And, and again, most of these higher concentrations and exposures are happening in production facilities and in marginalized communities, lower income communities, closer to things like airports and military bases. Um, you know, it's... Strange, uh, three days prior to the time I started writing this part, on March 14th, 2023, uh, the EPA formally lowered their original safety thresholds for two of the most prevalent species of PFAS, that is our PFOS and PFOA. Uh, they've lowered the, the safety thresholds to basically zero, as in, if you can avoid having this in your water, do it. Uh, but they lowered the legal threshold, you know, how much is legally allowed to be in your drinking water from 70 PPT to just 4 PPT, which is about an 18-fold decrease. So our story does not end here. Uh, we know that there are ramifications to human health from direct PFAS exposure, 
you know, living near dumping sites, working in facilities, etc. But there's also concurrent ecological ramifications here. And since we live in direct connection to local ecosystems as much as we might try to ignore it, uh, this affects us too. So of particular concern are aquatic habitats, you know, rivers, lakes, and streams. We return to Budemakaska, the lake, this time in 2009. This is over a century after the Dakota were forcibly removed from the land around the lake. And in the modern day, some researchers have come to take samples of the fish in the water to check for PFAS. Uh, the authors of the study that would come from this, Delinsky et al., uh, they took samples of water and fish, mostly along the Mississippi River and at locations known to be downstream of historic sources of these chemicals. Um, and among the water bodies is our lake here. The authors also chose one particular species of fish on which to focus their analyses. That's right, it's the bluegill. The authors chose to study the bluegill for a few reasons specifically. Uh, one, they're widespread across the entire U.S. and they're very commonly caught, they're very easily caught. That's the first fish I ever caught. Um, they're also commonly eaten by recreational and subsistence fishers. Uh, two, these fish have really, really small home ranges, like 30 square meters, meaning that they're they rep their PFAS inside their bodies actually represents, you know, the local, local environment. Uh, they don't go far, right? So this means they're good sentinels for, you know, the contamination that is actually occurring in the part of the lake that they are captured, right? Um, recall that these PFAS are extremely stable, meaning that they are more or less impossible for the body to break down or eliminate. Uh, this causes them to stack up in the tissues of organisms, especially in larger predators. Uh, you're probably familiar with high levels of mercury in things like tunas and dolphins. It's the same concept, uh, which scientists refer to as bioaccumulation. Uh, bluegill are not quite high-level predators like tunas or dolphins, but they do eat damn near everything they can fit in their tiny little mouths. So the authors of our study here catch a bunch of bluegill, they sample the fillets, and they run these fillets through an instrument called a mass spectrometer to figure out how much of these chemicals have built up in the fish. Uh, and this is measured in nanograms of PFAS per gram of fish flesh. Um, so for context, I'm gonna give you some numbers here that the Great Lakes Consortium for Fish Consumption Advisories lists uh, for the, the safety thresholds for eating fish, right? Uh, it sounds confusing, but bear with me. So if, if your fish fillet has less than or fewer than 10 nanograms per gram of PFAS in it, uh, you can eat as much as you like, just go crazy with it. Uh, 20 to 50 nanograms per gram, uh, keep it to one serving of that fish per week. 50 to 200, uh, don't eat this more than once a month. And anything above 200, that is too toxic to eat. Do not eat this, is what they say. So here is what our bluegill study found. Quote, bluegill from Lake Calhoun had the highest PFAS levels measured in this study, with a median concentration of 275 nanograms per gram. End quote. This means that the bluegill in Bidemakaska, once fished by the Dakota for sustenance, are now too toxic to safely eat. They will remain too toxic to eat for this foreseeable future. It's not just bluegill, and it's not just that one lake. Alarmingly high concentrations of PFAS have been found in smelt, in walleye, in bass, and countless other species in the Great Lakes and in freshwater bodies across the country. Local wildlife officials across the country have had to drastically reduce consumption limits as more and more you know, studies are done finding how much of this shit is in fish. Um, in many cases, advising fishers to eat no more than one serving of, of these fish per month or ideally none at all. 
In some cases, eating a single serving is equivalent to a month's worth of drinking water at the at that original maximum tolerable piece fast threshold of, of 70 ppt. Most affected by this, as you might expect, are tribal and subsistence fisheries. These are fisheries with generations of history and culture associated with fishing in ancestral rivers, in lakes, in streams, uh, entire ways of life and means making rendered irreparably toxic across the country. So you might have noticed that in that 2009 bluegill study, the lake was still called Lake Calhoun in that quote I read. Uh, this is not the author's fault. So even as late as 2009, the lake was actually still officially named after slave owner and racist piece of shit, John C. Calhoun. In fact, it would remain Lake Calhoun until 2018 when, following years of pressure from activists and the public, uh, the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, the, the DNR, officially returned the name back to the, the name that the indigenous had used for hundreds of years. That is Bidet Makaska. Uh, this move was as you might expect, given everything about America, uh, people were upset by this. Uh, the decision was overturned in the Minnesota Court of Appeals in 2019, in which the court ruled that the name Lake Calhoun was, as it was older than 40 years, uh, you can only change that through legislative action. You know, you can't just change that based on, you know, activists in the public. Uh, Obviously, the name Bidet Makaska was way, way older than 40 years. Uh, in fact, at the time of the lake's renaming, it was older than the entire United States as a country. Um, but there, there is good news here that this appeal got appealed to the Minnesota Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled that the, the 40 years bullshit only applies to rulings made by county boards, not the DNR. Long story short, the official name of the lake is officially back to Bidet Makaska as it remains today. About an hour's drive from the lake in Mankato, Minnesota, a monument to the 38 hanged Dakota men now sits at the site of the largest mass execution in American history. Every year in September, the names of the 38 Dakota men are read aloud at dawn. Food is offered for their spirits, and Dakota people from every community gather at Mankato, the place of the hanging, to honor their memory. And every year, eagles fly overhead as the drums and voices rise up from below. So today, the original name of the lake has returned, and, and this is obviously a really important step and absolutely the right thing to do. Um, I just want to bring us to a broader point here, though, that uh, no matter what the signposts around the lake say, the, the, the permanent damage done to the ancestral home of the Dakota, like, that's not going away. Um, the lake that their ancestors knew, which was a source of clean water and fish, that is gone forever. Uh, the legacy of PFAS contamination ensures that any traditional ways of subsisting from the lake are now impossible. For generations, the Dakota not only survived, but actually thrived sustainably and in large numbers. And they did so by following the rhythms of the natural world to find sustenance. Uh, and this is made possible only with intimate knowledge of and, and connection to the local ecology, right? Uh, when an ecosystem is permanently corrupted with toxic contamination, this way of life is made impossible. And there's, there's no unringing this bell, right? Uh, a name change cannot magically remove forever chemicals from the lake and from the fish and from its people. 
throughout all this, there is tremendous resilience among the Dakota to this day. Here are Fern Krauschner of the Prairie Island Indian Community, David Larson of the Lower Sioux Indian Community, and Darlene Renville Pipeboy of the Sisseton Wapitan Sioux Tribe. When I was a child, my favorite memories was running and playing out in the woods, down by the river. Play all day long, we'd fish, we'd swim. We didn't realize, but we were bringing food to the home because we would be fishing all day. They had to work so hard to survive, you know? And they never gave up, never gave up. This is home. This is home. I don't care how many years ago you live someplace else. This is home to them. I, I think there's no question that there is going to be a reunification uh, in Minnesota. Maybe we're not all going to move back, but we're all going to come back and we're all going to put together uh, what needs to be put together. Uh, we're going to put that circle back together. A healing has to begin with the, with the spiritual part of us, you know. And I don't think that's happened, you know. It takes a long time, you know, for the spirit to get well. Throughout this episode, we've discussed the history of direct physical genocidal violence inflicted by the U.S. onto the Dakota. And of course, direct violence is still inflicted on indigenous communities worldwide in the service of capital and empire. Uh, this violence exists alongside a quieter but nevertheless toxic form of indirect violence inherent to the system. Uh, that is violence against ecosystems, against cultures, and even against a fundamental connection with nature. Uh, did 3M and DuPont develop these chemicals with the explicit intention to poison people and to poison the traditional lands of indigenous peoples forever? No, I guess, but I, I would argue that the original intentions don't matter. It's irrelevant, uh, especially considering they realized pretty early on that their products were permanent and potentially toxic contaminants, and they, they chose to obscure this truth for, for decades just to make more money, right? Uh, the, the move fast and break things ethos is what allowed them to move fast to the top of the corporate food chain, and they broke ecosystems permanently. Uh, the poisoning of millions and permanent contamination of ecosystems were entirely acceptable consequences in the service of making money, and the regulatory apparatus for its part was unable to prevent this, nor could it adequately punish those responsible beyond, you know, uh, levying some fines and, and filing some suits, right? Um, I want to bring us around to this concept of annihilation, uh, that is, annihilation of subsistence, of culture, of connection to the land, and it's just as inherent to the colonial system as the physical removal of people from the land by force. Uh, alternative ways of existing outside the system are either absorbed or assimilated or just made impossible outright. Uh, we can see this pattern not just in the history of the Dakota, but in the histories of indigenous peoples worldwide. Uh, this pattern comes in many, many forms and doesn't always involve literally chemically poisoning an environment. Um, to help us illustrate what I mean here, I'd like to focus for a moment on a paper by Norgard et al. from 2017. 
The authors use the term colonial ecological violence to describe the damaging effects of wild salmon depletion on the culture of the Karuk tribe of modern-day Northern California. Wild salmon stocks had been heavily reduced from pre-colonial levels via commercial fishing, water diversion for agriculture, dam construction, climate warming, you name it. The threats to salmon in the modern age are, are many. Uh, beyond just sustenance for the Karuk tribe, though, uh, salmon have held spiritual and cultural significance for thousands of years. Uh, moreover, the provision of salmon for tribal elders in the, in the wider community is integral to the cultural and spiritual role of men specifically. Uh, quoting from the paper here, quote, For millennia, the Klamath River in Northern California was the third largest salmon-producing river in the western United States, making the Karuk some of the wealthiest people in the region. Fish are a gift from the spirit people, an important food source in a now impoverished rural region. Harvesting, preparing, and sharing fish continue to organize important material and symbolic features of social life. The right and responsibility to fish at specific sites is an honor passed down through families. Participation in fishing is an informal rite of passage for young men and a valued social role for adults. The impacts of environmentally damaging non-native management policies have severely degraded salmon populations. As a result, Karuk fishermen are no longer able to perform traditional activities or are only able to do so in a limited way." End quote. Important note here, the authors caution against viewing uh, the term masculinity here with the same lens that we use to analyze like the hierarchical colonial style patriarchy that dominates you know, American culture, for example. Uh, so here's another quote. Uh, Although we do not claim that Karuk gender relations are free from hierarchy, exclusive definitions of masculinity in relation to power and domination at worst appear to privilege colonial masculinities and at best leave no room for indigenous conceptions of masculinity in the form of carrying out responsibilities to the natural world or to community, end quote. The destruction of salmon stocks has a dire effect on men's uh, sense of spiritual and cultural identity, both as Karuk and as men. Uh, the inability to provide fish induces feelings of shame, guilt, hopelessness, and, and even as the men are keenly aware that the declines in these fish are, are caused by you know, larger scale colonial impacts, things outside their control, right? Uh, but nevertheless, you know, the deterioration of the fishery, it brings to bear a lot of concrete effects on mental health, substance abuse and, and general well-being across the tribal community. Um, this paper includes many quotes from interviews with members of the Karuk tribe, both men and women, young and old. I'm just going to read a few here as they articulate many of the feelings uh, better than I could ever hope to. Um, quoting from a Karuk mother, quote, I think that's one of the things we end up with today because we have a limited view of roles. It's like either you're a fisherman or if you're a guy, you got to be a fisherman. You don't want young boys to think, I've never been to the falls to fish, you know, so maybe I'm not quite the Indian that someone else is who goes to the falls and fishes, end quote. Quoting here from a middle-aged Karuk man, quote, I killed my first deer when I was about 12 years old. It was a big four-pointer, and one of the things that really sticks in my mind right now is after my brothers cut it up and gutted it, at that time I realized I was an important part of our society because I was able to give meat to my aunts, my great aunts, my uncles. Even today, when I catch fish in the falls, I don't bring fish home. I give it away to the elders, people who don't have kids who can go down and pack fish up for them. I take fish to these people." End quote. Importantly, gender roles are not static, and again, there's tremendous resilience evidence in these quotes. Um, for example, the authors describe how many Karuk men 
are able to find a renewed sense of place and purpose in, in fishery management, uh, as well as political activism and ecosystem recovery efforts. So quoting here from a young Karuk fisher, quote, my job for one, you know, I'm, I'm out here in this job. If I can be a part of maybe restoring the Klamath, then that would make me feel good. You know, if I keep that positive feeling going, then that kind of helps me black out the negative part of the world, you know? I think that if everybody can do their part, bringing the salmon back and restoring the health of a river, if everybody reaches out and does their own little part, end quote. Finally, here's a quote from a young Karuk man involved in direct political action to remove dams and actually restore habitat for salmon on the Klamath River. Quote, the thing that keeps me going is that saying we don't inherit this land from our elders and our ancestors, we borrow it from our children. I try to keep that in mind. I just got to do my part. I'm just another animal who's going to be up here for this little tiny span, and hopefully I can smash some stuff up and maybe be smashed up in the process and hopefully afford my family some of the things that I was afforded as a child. We return to the lake a final time. Our bluegill is a little bit older and a bit wiser since we last saw him. At seven years old, age has not yet slowed him. He still gives the birds and the bass a run for their money whenever they try to make a meal of him. Even still, he doesn't feel like he used to. Each year he has less and less energy to build a nest. Scrapes and nips take longer to heal, and even a small infection could swiftly turn lethal. One day his luck will run out and he will die. His energy and essence will return to the lake, along with all the little tiny things he unknowingly took on board with every meal and with every breath. He held them for quite a while, but he can't hold them forever. He has lived well, though. His offspring dart and play around the same old weedy haunts that he frequented in his youth. He looks out into the open water of the lake, which does not look so scary anymore. Thank you for listening to another episode of Sledgefest. I'd like to leave you with something concrete that you can do if you're so inclined, uh, rather than just leaving you with you know, feeling aimless and sad. Um, if you're able, you can donate to indigenousmutualaid.org. Uh, this website has a ton of different indigenous uh, mutual aid projects um, for many different tribes. Uh, you can also donate to the Western Klamath Restoration Project. That's at www wkrp.network. Um, this is a collaboration between academic researchers and the Karuk tribe themselves, as well as some conservation agencies to help restore the Klamath River uh, forests, communities, and cultures. Special thanks to editor Shannon Rawlings. Background music by California Deathworm. That's californiadeathworm.bandcamp.com and at grouchyjerk on Twitter. Uh, intro and outro music is by Pup the Band. Uh, you can find all the resources uh, that I used for this episode in the show notes at patreon.com slash sludgefest or at substack.com slash sludgefest. And you can follow me on Twitter at jesseblacksci, that's J-E-S-S-E-B-L-A-C-K-S-C-I. Thank you so much for listening. I love you all. And remember, despair is useless. 